And we all got dreams We all want things But what you gonna do for it? How you gonna move for it? What you gonna be? And do you believe You can do anything But what you gonna do for it? How you gonna move for it? What you gonna be? Another edition of Outside Shots presented by TheLines.com. Myself, Eli Herskovich. Follow me on X Twitter at Eli Herskovich. And my co-host today, Eric Haslam, the founder of Haslametrics.com, the best college basketball analytics site. You can follow him on X Twitter at Haslametrics. Remember, if you're betting college basketball, use BetMGM promo code TheLines, one word, to get up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if your first bet loses. Bonus bets are not equivalent to real money, and as always, terms and conditions apply. You can check out the latest college basketball odds at thelines.com and find all of our bets in the Lines Discord channel as well. The link is over at thelines.com in the top right-hand corner. Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, all that good stuff. Eric, it is holiday season. It is about a month since we last did our last episode of Outside Shots, so How's the Christmas shopping going, first and foremost? Well, I'm a, I'm a late Christmas shopper. I'm kind of catching that at the tail end. You know, I, I have friends and I have a wife who kind of handle a lot of that. So thank God my wife handles a lot of the Christmas shopping for my kids. Otherwise, <laughs> they'd be screwed. But finally, I have. Uh, I think I'm probably about done for my wife. She handles most of the kids. I take a few little things for her. Um, I kind of inherit some of the wrapping, and I'm glad to do that if I don't have to do the shopping. But for my wife... It's a little bit of a trick because she doesn't always give me the, the biggest list in the world. She likes experiences. I don't really, you really can't wrap experiences and put them under the tree. Uh, but for the most part, online shopping is, is a man's best friend. And I think I'm probably about good for this year. And I'm, I'm, and I'm set for, uh, for about another eight months until my wife's birthday again. Impressive. So it sounds like you were the one that's picking it out versus even though she kind of gives you a raw list, you're still coming up with the idea of the trip per se. Yeah, there's a lot of go-tos that I have for her. I know the certain things that she likes. They're kind of repeating. You can you can never go be, uh, you know wrong with Bed Bath and Beyond or anything like that, uh, <laughs> or the, you know different kinds of alcohols that she likes that she'll burn through. Eventually, I can just kind of take that, and that's great because that's consumption. That's not something that's going to lay around the house. You know, when you're like 22 years old or 25 years old and you've just been married, your house is pretty empty and you're looking to fill it. Well, well, you know, right now my wife is. 53 and i'm 49 we've already got too much crap in the house we're looking to get rid of stuff so some of the stuff that we put out there for christmas presents is something that we can consume and then throw away so that's kind of the idea i respect you guys trying to avoid hoarding (laughs) at all or at least to your best capabilities (laughs) but yeah holiday shopping is a little trickier on my side but i do have the benefit of talking to her grandma when it comes to jewelry. So I'm <laughs> I'm grateful in that sense this holiday season that I'm not the one that's necessarily picking out the gift because I'll be honest, engagement ring when it came around to that time last summer, I got complete advice on the direction to go with that. I was not the one picking out the engagement ring. I don't know if you remember did, did how you, go you wholesale? ended up going did, about that process. Did you go wholesale? I went or did you go retail? I went to a family family jeweler. Okay. Did you pick it out yourself? So I went to a when? wholesaler. That was the biggest thing. Granted, this was a long time ago now. This would have been, I would have gotten engaged in 2003. But I remember the the best advice I had, and people who are listening to this, find a wholesaler if you can get a wholesaler because you're going to save yourself several thousands of dollars. Um, otherwise, the retailers are going to jack it up. 
Um, I, I, right. I, it's, it's been too long. I can't remember what I paid for it. It's, she, she just got it cleaned the ring last week and the guy complimented and said, boy, you have a heck of a nice ring. So apparently I did a nice enough job, but, um, <laughs> I, I honestly, I can't remember what I paid for it. It was very expensive for me at the time, but I remember I saved uh, at least two or $3,000 by going through a wholesaler. So guys, if you're looking for a ring, if you can find an whole, a wholesaler, over a retailer you're gonna you're gonna thank me later good advice not just when it comes to college basketball betting but also (laughs) how to and where to buy jewelry come christmas time or when you're making the big purchase i couldn't believe how expensive things are when it comes to all that stuff and all the wedding stuff man i know it just gives me a headache but anyways (laughs) on to more fun stuff when it comes to college basketball here's how the podcast this edition of outside shots is going to go we're going to discuss and do a little bit of gift exchanging between eric and i ourselves a little bit of white elephant shopping when it comes to the futures market and then We will dive into some games. It's a little bit of a condensed slate this week, juxtaposed to the loaded Saturday slate that we saw over the weekend. But still a few marquee games to get into in the non-conference portion or last couple weeks of non-conference play before we dive into the full edition of conference season come January and onward. And Eric, before we do so, like I mentioned, huge games over the weekend. The biggest one that, or at least the one that stood out to me most was Purdue knocking off Arizona. And that's probably at the forefront of a lot of betters or college basketball fans and their perspective from what happened. Purdue knocking off Arizona as a one and a half point home, home ish dog. I know the game was on a neutral, but it was in Indianapolis and winning that one by eight, 92 to 84. Purdue currently is the betting favorite in the national title features market as high as 10 to one. The biggest thing that stood out to me with Purdue, Eric, was a little bit different than last year, just in terms of Zach Eady and his ability, I guess, or his vision when it comes to getting the ball outside of the post, because I thought he was a little more reluctant to pass the ball outside, especially because Purdue's efficiency from deep wasn't nearly as good in catch-and-shoot situations as it is this season, and I'll dive into that in a second. But digging into some numbers from that game in particular – Three of his post-up shot attempts came off re-entry touches when he passed the ball outside of post-doubles, and then he also set up three three-point attempts for Purdue's perimeter shooting, which resulted in two Purdue makes. And like I mentioned, Purdue shot 32.6% on spot-up jumpers last year per synergy, 40.4% this season. So it's not only the refined efficiency from guys like Braden Smith and Fletcher Lawyer who caught fire in that game and Lance Jones to an extent, but you're also seeing ED have a little bit more patience when it comes to playing inside out. And of course, just with the proficiency of some of these shooters, like I touched on. So that stood out to me. One of the concerns I have with Purdue overall ball screen coverage still remains an issue when you go back to that game and maybe less so with an Arizona team that doesn't run five out as much, but Edie can get himself into trouble. And that's kind of the issue for a lot of teams that have your traditional bigs when you're trying to play drop, but they're not as quick on the perimeter to guard some of these three point reliant teams, or at least teams that play five out. And you look at opponents, three point shooting on unguarded catch and shoot shots, Purdue's opponents in particular, 27.6%, which is well below the division one average. So Purdue is making more shots 
off of ED post touches and catch and shoot situations, which come off of those post touches primarily. And then they're also getting a bit fortunate, which could haunt them either come Big Ten play or come the NCAA tournament. But I, I thought it was the perfect storm for Purdue. What you're looking for is, you know, I've always said in the past, and this has probably held true the last couple of years, of any time that Painter relies too heavily on Edie, I don't think that's a great strategy. That'll work through for a lot of teams, but in the long run, for the health of the team, I don't think you want to rely on that. So what you have to do, and this was the case last year as well, is the guys who really stepped up last year to be that kind of safety valve was either going to be Fletcher Lawyer or it was going to be uh, Braden Smith. And we saw that throughout the year. And my concern going into the tournament is you're relying on those freshmen who are under the big lights of March Madness don't necessarily bring it at that time of year. And as it happened, that's exactly what occurred against FDU. Now this year, you've got these guys with a, with a year of experience underneath their belts. And then you've put in Lance Jones in there, who is a, a replacement for basically a replacement for Brandon Newman. And is a, I guess, that third outlet that probably didn't exist so much. I mean, you got guys like Gillis, you got guys like First. Um, those guys will play that supplemental role. But I think Lance Jones can be that go to guy. Now, Lance Jones, you know, I think he shot one for six from distance in that game against Arizona, not his best game. He has shown that he can light it up in the past and they can rely on him. But when I say this was the perfect storm, Normally with Purdue, you usually get a real hot Braden Smith. He steps up and then then Lawyer is kind of in the background or it's vice versa. Lawyer all of a sudden has a great game and Braden Smith doesn't do much. In this situation, all three of them just lit up everything. I'm, I'm including Edie. Edie's going to get his points. You know he's going get to get his points. But when you get Smith and Lawyer playing like that and shooting like that, shooting a combined 9 of 16 behind the arc, combining for 53 points, Smith with 26, Lawyer with 27, Edie gets his 22. If you get those three guys hot, it's it's very difficult to beat that team. I mean, even with just those three guys alone. Now, that's not going to happen every single game. And, you know, I could say, well, that's the reason they beat Arizona. Well, I could go the other way, too. Caleb Love played a heck of a game. I think he he played out of his mind. If 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 Smith and, and Lawyer played out of their minds, I think he played equally as well. Um, but in this game, when you're talking about Edie in there, he's a, he's a game changer. And then you surround him with Lawyer and, and Smith. And if they play like that, all three of them, they are just really, really tough to beat. I think Purdue came away in the, from this game with the target on their back. Whoever was going to win this game was going to have the target on their back because they were the number one team. Um, Purdue won it to their credit. I think they're the ones who are, you know, have the, have the claim to be number one. And long-term prognosis, I don't know if, you know, if, if Arizona is still the best team, if this was a seven-game series, if things would be any different. But right now, you got to give Purdue the credit. They were the better team on that day. Right, or just on a neutral. And what would have happened in that situation? I would have probably preferred that just to get a better sense of both of these teams. But, you know, you were talking about the improvement that their guards have made, and we've certainly seen that from Braden Smith. Probably less so from Fletcher Lawyer, but he certainly stepped up on Saturday. Matt Painter has also adjusted, maybe not in the sense of trying to beat the press, which I still Mm -hmm. think could be a bit of an issue for this team if they were when they face a team like Maryland to open up Big Ten play. And listen, that Terps future, I bet, going back to the summer is completely washed. <laughs> Deshaun Harris-Smith <laughs> and Jamie Kaiser have been the exact opposite of what I thought was going to, at least what they were going to bring to this team. And I definitely underestimated the loss of Akeem Hart for sure. I still like my other two futures, but Akeem Hart as a connective wing, going back to what Maryland had last year, I think the points per possession differential when he was on and off the court was around 0.20. So 
he made a big difference. I thought Deshaun Harris-Smith and Kaiser would be able to make some of that up. It hasn't happened so far. But going back to that first matchup against Maryland, at Maryland, it's going to be a true road game. One of Purdue's only true road tests of the season. Or at Northwestern, which they failed to not only cover, but win the game outright. And then you're facing a team that wants to pressure the basketball at will. And Kevin Willard is going to have to do that, too have a chance to disrupt this Purdue offense. So that's going to be one game to kind of target, especially because if you look at some of the expected point spreads, I know Haslametrics, your side, Eric, has it around at least above double digits, which most of the prognosticators have across the analytics site. So we'll see what happens in that kind of a setting in a difficult road environment, because like we touched on, this game was in Indianapolis, so not a true home game, but pretty damn close to it. As we dive into the futures market, like I said, Purdue right around 10 to 1 favorite to win the national title, Arizona right behind them at some shops, 10 to 1 too. You could price shop the best odds over at thelines.com. The way I want to go about this, Eric, is do a white elephant gift exchange. So I'm sure you've been to either Christmas parties or holiday parties where you get a gift that you absolutely hate. Maybe it came from your wife on Christmas. And we'll, we're each going to throw out a couple futures that we're targeting at this point of the season and either tell each other why we hate the gift and why we want to return it if your sports book does offer a refund or just decide to rip up into shreds. Eric, I'll let you tip it off. What is your first white elephant college basketball futures gift? Well, first of all, what I'm going to say is what I look for for a national champion, and I've said this before, I said this all of last year, is I want a team that's top 10 offensive efficiency, top 35 defensive efficiency. Since it's still relatively early in the year, I'm going to give it a little bit of uh, leeway and, and kind of say I'll go top 15 offensive efficiency, top 40 defensive efficiency. And if I do that, I result right now, as of today, with, with seven teams – and I'll say, you know, the four are definitely in as far as the, the 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 top 10 offensive efficiency. The other three are kind of between 10 and or 11 and 15. But I'm going to start out with Florida Atlantic. I'm going to throw that out there. Florida Atlantic meets the qualifications, the original qualifications of top 10 and top 35. They're, they're number eight in the country for me in offensive efficiency, number 33 in defensive efficiency. Um, they're not, I think you also got to be able to shoot the long ball. Right now, they show up for me as number 19 in adjusted three-point percentage. I show the odds at them right now right around 40 to 1. Now, granted, you did have that loss early on um, to Bryant, which was a real head-scratcher. At that point, I really started to doubt, was this the Florida Atlantic team that they were supposed to be? But they have turned it around. They had also a loss to Illinois, but they have got really decent to good wins in there as well. I mean, Butler is a, is a decent win. But then you got really good wins. Texas A&M, Virginia Tech's a good win. Liberty, St. Bonaventure, a good win. This is a team that is actually battle-tested. Um, I'm going to talk about some other teams potentially that have kind of puffer-fished. And I call puffer-fished because they've played a lot of cupcakes to a certain extent. And their strength of schedule sits you know, in the 230 range or 250 range. If you're looking at strength of schedule on my site for Florida Atlantic, 35th in the country right now for Florida Atlantic. The good thing about Florida Atlantic, too, is that, you know, outside of this upcoming game coming against Arizona here on Saturday, there isn't a lot of stiff competition coming up for Florida Atlantic. If you look at their schedule, unless you count Wichita State as, I guess, stiff competition, the next real competition for Florida Atlantic is at the end of February. And that's back-to-back when they get SMU, and then they travel to play at Memphis. So after this game at Arizona, if they can score a win over Arizona, that'd be huge. 
And then they basically kind of, I guess, go on vacation to a certain degree. If they take care of business, there's no reason they can't run the table going into late February. So that's a team that, you know, I, I you know, when you look at a small unexpected school to go to the final four, the odds of it happening again are probably a long shot. But this Florida Atlantic team, I really like them. This is a team that just has, you know, eight different guys who can beat you in a variety of different ways. They can play in a variety of different tempos. You get a Nick, you get Nick Boyd back now, who's healthy, who's been out for, I want to say, about a month or so. Um, he's back right. in the mix. Florida Atlantic is I will put the first uh, the first item underneath the white elephant. I guess not under the tree, but in the white elephant pile. I would start with them. All right. Because you look back at that run last year. Will the kind of path that FAU was set up with, whether it was Memphis having Kendrick Davis go down in the final five minutes, dealing with that ankle injury, they move on, then they get the benefit of playing a 16 seed, then playing an offensive at least a Tennessee team that couldn't really shoot the three ball. I know Rick Barnes teams have always been better on the defensive end, if not the best defensive team in college basketball, but certainly hindered with their efficiency from deep. And then you play a Kansas state team that also outperformed expectation to get to the elite eight and nearly taken down a San Diego state team that pretty much did the same exact thing they did that benefited from a path that, team like San Diego State was probably overdue to make that kind of a run, but you still need that path to make that run. Now, with that said, Vladislav Golden and the jump he's made, because, Eric, when we're looking for teams that have made previous runs in order to make it again, let's say FAU does get a top six, top five seed in March, and they avoid that dreaded 8-9-7-10 matchup. Has there been a rise in play from one of your stars? And I think Elijah Martin and John L. Davis have produced maybe a little bit more efficiently, but to a similar extent that they did last season. But Golden averaging 27.7 points per 40 minutes, which is up over eight points per 40 minutes from last season, shooting 66.7% from the field, drawing 6.9 fouls per 40 minutes. Free throw percentage is also up. Which, again, you think about critical shot making down the stretch, even from the line, which is important when you play close games like they did against Memphis in the first round. Also, limited in foul trouble against Illinois in that loss at the Garden, but 23 points in 19 minutes, and FAU was plus 8 during those 19 minutes. So you wonder if he didn't get in foul trouble against a, a pretty aggressive Illinois defense. And like I said, the path to March is my concern for a team that – as a mid-major is priced at 50 to 1, probably fairly priced into the market when you think about some of those Wichita State teams that consistently got into the tournament. Obviously, the Shockers were a one seed one season and lost to an underseeded team or a team that underexceeded expectations throughout the regular season in Kentucky, upset them, made it all the way to the national championship game against UConn and lost there. But I don't know if you're getting a ton of value with that number, Eric, but I will say to have a core player like Golden make that leap is huge for a team that you have to outperform expectation, and he's done that. Right, and that's what, as you mentioned, yeah, coming into the season, the two main scorers, the headliners, were Elijah Martin and, and John L. Davis. Well, uh, Martin averaging 13.4 last year, John L. Davis av averaging 13.8. Vlad, Vlad Golden average 10.2 but here he is upping his average by almost five points a game he's averaging 15.1 a game with seven rebounds so now all of a sudden you've got this three-headed monster and you add Boyd and Greenlee to the mix and all of a sudden yeah I mean this is a, a team 
that was, I, you know, I, I wouldn't say, um, you know, a little wet behind the ears last year, but now this is a team with another year of experience behind them. And we know that they can go deep and we know they have the talent. We know they can play a variety of styles. And I, it is a tough pick because when the team goes to the final four, you kind of hesitate and go, I don't really want to pick them again and go to the final four because getting to the final four is difficult. But it's all about the matchups, like you said, and you never know what kind of matchups they're going to get. It's really hard to say, but that's a team that, you know, from top to bottom, they have the fingerprint. Um, when you're looking at that top 10 offensive efficiency, top 35 defensive efficiency, not to stay, not to say it's going to stay there because as you play that conference play, they're going to have to probably beat teams by some pretty big margins to stay as high as they currently are. But the fact that they're there right now with the schedule, um, the strength of schedule that they faced is pretty impressive. If you look at that, especially considering one of those games was that nasty loss to Bryant. Right. And we've seen a lot of teams go down in difficult situations. Heck, Northwestern losing to Chicago State. I'm not saying Northwestern is a top 25 team when it comes to my power ratings because they're not and they're not for you either on Haslametrics.com. But a team that upsets Purdue and then loses to one of the worst Division One teams in college basketball, it says something. And that's kind of been the landscape or at least what some of the results we've seen so far. Like you said, FAU losing to Bryant. Now, FAU plays Arizona on Saturday, and not that I want to dig too deep into that game right now, but when betters think about getting value on a number, I know you have this game projected as a Wildcats nine-point win, but if someone's listening to the podcast and you're trying to get a jump on some of that value, do you think the Owls could potentially matchup-wise, metric-wise, have enough to pull off an upset? Because if they do upset Arizona, that number is going to dip. Oh, you never, you know, never say never. Um, I would never probably be that aggressive to try that um, against Arizona. I just believe that much in Arizona this year. And um, I, I, you know, I guess it's going to kind of, I, I, to answer that question, I got to see exactly what Arizona is going to do. Cause Arizona is stuck in a, in a, in a quick turnaround double header within a span of what, 96 hours. You got to go back to back with Alabama and Florida Atlantic. Um, you know, like talking about, you don't know how one game is going to affect the other. And, and for example, a great example is I'm, very curious to see what's going to happen with Baylor going forward, just because of what happened with Michigan State. Baylor looked like a team that was kind of coming into the season. I don't know, not quite what I've expected, you know, Baylor teams to be in the past, but they came out 9-0, and and all of a sudden they just got smacked in the mouth by Michigan State. These are young college kids, emotional kids, and I don't think they have short memories. So if you get smacked around, I think that may linger with you. You have a little bit of a hangover. I'm wondering you know, first of all, I got to see how Arizona does against Alabama. If Arizona comes out there and plays that game well, um, even if it, they win by a margin of five, six points, that's good enough. I, I have confidence. But all of a sudden, if Alabama comes out and pushes them around, and all of a sudden Arizona is now in the midst of a two-game losing streak, it probably changes the dynamic a little bit because people start playing games in their head. What are we doing wrong? What's what's the issue here? I've gone through difficulties myself in sports playing head games like that. So to answer that question, I would say, you know, I, at this point, it's too early to say I do like Arizona in the long run. Like I said, if I had to pick a team that was going to go all the way at this point, I probably would lean with Arizona just as the overall package. But, um, you know, FAU, like I said, a team that can, you know, shock anybody, that can play with anybody. It's a nine-point spread. Um, that's a big one. I, I, I certainly would not be surprised for them, for them to cover that, no problem. But, you know, asking for a win, and if they get that win, that's a huge win because, like I said, then they kind of go on a two-month vacation. If they take care of business, they can have a very similar record to what they had a year ago when I think they only had three losses. 
On to the future that I'm going to be using as my lone white elephant gift, Eric. So you're stuck with it, whether you like it or not. Was a bet I made going back to a few weeks ago. I took Auburn. I got 80 to 1. There were some 70 to 1s that popped a little bit after that. And there is one 70 to 1 rogue available on the Tigers as low as 35 to 1 at Circus Sports, which is one of the sharper sports books. And the podcast, the most recent Outside Shots podcast I did, if you want to check that out with Matt Metcalf, who now does consulting for Circus Sports and used to run their college basketball odds making section, I guess, of the of the book, had them as a top 10 power rated team at that time. And not that they've had the most difficult non-conference schedule. I do kind of want to get your take on that. But if you price shop, there are still some 40 or 50 to ones available. And like I said, there is a rogue 70 to one. If you can get down some on the Tigers with that number, I would certainly do so. So you mentioned your qualifications about why you like FAU. For me, when you look at Haslametrics, Auburn has one of the most top 10, top 15 offensive and defensive efficiency at both ends of the floor. This is an elite team at forcing turnovers. So when you get a team on a neutral floor that can disrupt your offense, like we saw against Indiana, and you can make a case for Indiana, maybe outperforming expectations of late just because they were able to push Kansas. But then again, that was a home game, a hike game for Indiana after getting blitzed by Auburn the weekend before. So to your point about motivation and college kids, maybe it was more so of the one-off than the consistency that we're going to see or not going to see from Indiana in Big Ten play. But I was impressed with Auburn's ability to really heat up those Indiana guards and generate turnovers and completely flip the game in the first half, go from being down double digits to being up double digits at the break of 16 points or something like that. And also one of the other metrics at Haslametrics.com, Auburn is the eighth highest near proximity shot rate across college basketball. So shots at the rim, pretty much dunks, tippins, whatever it may be. And you have a top 50 offensive rebounding rate with guys like Jani Broom and Cardwell, so you're elite at creating second chance shots, which is big towards being able to control the tempo and also just getting second chance opportunities on a neutral court is huge to be able to sustain some of either poor shooting or the opposition in foul trouble, which Broom is great at, and the free throw shooting needs to improve in that department. We saw a little bit of rise in efficiency from him, but over the course of the season needs to improve. Auburn also fifth highest assist rate in college basketball, which definitely counters what we saw from this team last season. You have a five-star point guard in Aiden Holloway, who's really starting to make that jump that I was looking for when I bet them at 80 to one. And you've honestly one of the better two headed monsters at the point guard spot with Holloway in the starting lineup and Trey Donaldson, their sophomore guard, three-star guard going back to last year off the bench, one of the better point guard duos to me in college basketball. And then the secondary point with Holloway and Donaldson in mind, the three-point efficiency has also taken a big leap. They're no longer bottom 60 in college basketball in that department like they were last year with guys like Zeb Jasper, who were really inefficient. You have Donaldson and Holloway that can really light it up from deep, both shooting a very efficient Percentage from three, Denver Jones, the FIU transfer as well. So about a little below average when it comes to Division One three-point efficiency, but still the fact that they're getting a higher shooting percentage from deep really makes this offense go like we saw against USC over the weekend, a USC team that has underperformed expectations, and then the Indiana game before that. And then in order to play that defensive style, like I mentioned 
heating up opposing guards and generating turnovers. Auburn is 10th in bench minutes with guys like Katie Johnson, who's a ball disruptor in his own right and emotional guard at that. And then Chad Baker Mazzara, the San Diego State transfer, has a lot of experience, didn't get a ton of minutes with the Aztecs, but has experience in defenses that you're really trying to apply ball pressure and generate turnovers. So they're projected for a number four seed, which at even 40 or 50 to one is still worth a dart for me, but definitely like my price that I bet them at. So Eric, what do you make of Auburn the path they've had so far in particular? Yeah, you know, for me, I think they're just a little bit of a surprise this year, especially when I looked at the results and I see that they absolutely buried three teams in USC, Indiana and Virginia Tech. You, you talked about Janai Broom on the inside. He's a big force. He's averaging 15 and 8. Aiden Holloway has stepped up, like you said. He's As a freshman, right away, he's averaging 12 points a game, 4 assists per game. Um, right now, I'd say one of the weaknesses, and we I, we talked on this, it's always been shooting a little bit with Arizona, with, uh, excuse me, with Auburn. Right now, in, in adjusted three-point percentage, I have him currently 152nd in the country. That needs to improve, but right now, part of the problem is that KD Johnson is kind of struggling to find a shot, shooting only 22% from distance. Janai Broom wants to expand his game. He's going to shoot the three-pointer more. He's That's a developing three-point shot, and we're seeing yeah. it this year. He's still shooting only 21%. If they can find touch, especially those two guys, Kitty Johnson and Janai Broom, that three-point percentage is going to rise, and then you're talking about Auburn really being an elite team this year. And on that note, too, their three-point defense might be due for a little bit of regression. I wrote that up in my futures breakdown when I made the bet initially going back to November, and it's risen. The opponent's three-point efficiency has shot up, so they were kind of getting lucky with their perimeter defense, but at the same time, they may be due for a little bit of three-point shooting regression in their own right when you look at catch-and-shoot three-point efficiency. So something to keep in mind when you're trying to maybe sell high on a team like Auburn that hasn't had the most difficult schedule, but when they do face a team in SEC play, maybe it's Alabama that is one of the best three-point shooting teams in college basketball that can take advantage of a three-point defense that is going to regress in a negative sense. But again, at the same time, Auburn has three-point shooters, even though you mentioned Broom and Johnson have to approve with their efficiency you have point guards that can actually shoot at a higher clip unlike last season along with Denver Jones who gives you a true shooting threat at that two guard spot in the starting lineup which they really haven't had over the last couple years now I want to touch on a couple of other teams that you shot over to me for some potential white elephant gifts as we look at Marquette and BYU now Definitely juxtaposing futures bets because Marquette is priced at best number 18 to one in the futures market. And then BYU 60 to one. They were as high as 125 to one. And BYU, one of the better, not only three-point shooting teams in the country, but they're also an elite rebounding team when it comes to the offensive and defensive end. The one of three teams that have a top 25 offensive and defensive rebounding rate at both ends of the floor along with Arizona and Connecticut. And then Marquette, obviously, with that explosive offense and the defense has improved now, top 20 in defensive efficiency, unlike last year when they were borderline top 30 in the country to go along with that explosive offense led by the All-American point guard, Tyler Kolek. Would you rather take a number like that in Marquette that it's probably priced correctly, but you're getting 
a number one, potentially a number one seed if Marquette wins the Big East Conference yet again and wins the Big East Tournament? Or would you rather take a mid-major approach like you did with FAU and BYU, Eric? Well, you know, at this point, you know, I'm going to say I'd probably go with the safe bet, and that would probably be Marquette. You know, that's a smart team. That's a team that only shoots the mid-range when absolutely necessary. We've talked about um, Cam Jones and Tyler Kolek. We knew about them coming in, but Ose Godoro has really upped his game this year. 44 points per game combined out of those three. That is the smart bet. If you look at BYU, that's kind of the upstart team that is all of a sudden right now ninth in offensive efficiency, fourth in defensive efficiency, 42nd in adjusted three-point percentage. Um, the strength of schedule that I talked about earlier, they're a little bit guilty of that. They're only 230th there. They launch a ton of three-pointers, make a ton of three-pointers. Uh, but on top of that, like I said, they're defensively competent. I think they're known for their three-point shooting. But, you know, defensively, they, they play solidly. Nobody eliminates second-chance points like BYU does. They are, I think they're tops in the nation in both of my categories in defensive second-chance conversion percentage. Their only loss so far has been at Utah. They beat San Diego State. And if you look at the you know the players across the board, Jackson Robinson is the leading scorer in this team off the bench, arguably the best sixth man in the country, averaging 17-3. and three. And then on top of that, you got a, this team has been doing all of this without Fusini Traore. I'm going to say that, but I hopefully got the pronunciation. I think I believe you it's did, pronounced you did. Tra, Traore, who has been out since <laughs> Thanksgiving with a hamstring injury. So they've been doing all this without him. Um, but again, BYU, so a couple things about BYU worry me. One of them is the efficiency margins that they've been kind of putting under their belt, um, making them a little bit into a puffer fish of sorts. And we talk about teams like BYU, and I'll include Iowa State. Iowa State, people are talking about them on Twitter or X. Um, Oklahoma, I think, probably falls under the same category. These are teams that have performed like an elite team would against lesser competition, but they really have not faced a lot of tough opposition. So when they actually go against some teams who are going to push back, like Kansas will or Texas will, how will they fare in the Big 12? All three of these teams, uh, Iowa State, Oklahoma, and like I said, BYU, who is a new member of the Big 12, all they are now all going to have to go head-to-head with these tough teams. Now, are they going to continue playing at this level? Or now that they actually face a little resistance, are they going to fade? Now, right now, BYU looks like a great team on paper. That's my concern with BYU that they are going to fold when they reach when they meet actual competition. I have less of a concern that Marquette will do so. Also, with BYU and the number itself, like I said, best price you can find on the Cougars is sixty to one, and they were one hundred twenty-five to one earlier in the year. So, similar to the notion that I brought up with FAU, if you're trying to bet a mid-major that's going to certainly need variance, and BYU is a high-variance team. I would rather bet a high-variance team that had a big number, especially when they're from the mid-major ranks, just because that variance could go south in a hurry if BYU struggles on a neutral court. But you're getting a big number. If you're betting BYU into its proper market rating, let's say this is the team that BYU is, then you're not getting a ton of value on a mid-major that's going to need variance in the tournament. And if they go cold from deep, even though, like you said, you have one of the better six men in college basketball in Robinson and also Noah Waterman can really stretch the floor from three. And he's a really good rebounder too. He fits into that mold that you brought up with the Cougars rebounding efficiency and limiting some of those second chance shots, a six eleven floor spacing big, but yeah, I agree. I agree. I would go with Marquette if I had to bet one of those two. Now the one concern for me, which in comparison to BYU, Marquette is not super efficient 
on the glass. Bottom 60 in defensive rebounding percentage. Bottom 100 in offensive rebounding rate. So when those three-point shots are falling, not I wouldn't call the Golden Eagles a high-variance team just because Shaka Smart relies on that ball pressure and they do get out in transition and attack the paint. Iguodaro's improvement as a ball handler and as a point forward, point center in a sense, has really taken that offense in the half court to another level too. College basketball's version of Nikola Jokic. I'm not trademarking that just because I've heard it in a bunch of other spots, but either way, Marquette top 55 in three-point attempt rate. And that's kind of the difference between Creighton and Marquette. Now, would I trust Marquette defensively a little bit more? Yes, just because I think they have made an improvement at that end of the floor, and that starts with guard depth, too, off the bench, like a guy that's made strides, and Sean Jones, who we saw make a big difference at the Maui Invitational, whether it was against UCLA to really heat up that second-half spurt or against Kansas, and even though they fell to Purdue, he still played a big difference trying to pressure those Purdue guards. Like we said, that could be an issue for the Boilermakers in March, but Creighton's ability to control the glass when Ryan Cockbrenner is on the floor, which he wasn't for stretches of the Alabama game, even though Creighton came out on top, Creighton a much better rebounding team. So what do you make of that, Eric, just between those two teams and three-point reliant-ish, Creighton more so for sure, but Creighton the better rebounding team just if their shooting isn't red hot for a high-variance team in their own right. No, I would agree with you. I think that's uh, that's spot on. Um, that's probably a reason why I like the long-term. Um, I, would, I would be optimistic more about Creighton probably than Marquette. I like to say the joke goes with me and a few of my friends over the last few years, don't never trust Marquette. And I think you hit the nail on the head. The rebounding has kind of been the, the ongoing issue and has always just been that kind of elephant in the room kind of that's just been kind of sitting there. And if you look at their second-chance numbers a year ago, when they were bounced in the second round, um, or was it? The, I can't remember. They were they were bounced in the second round. Yeah, round of thirty two. Yeah, round thirty two by Michigan State. Um, this was a team that the last few years has had problems getting second chances. One of the things that my site tracks is second chances. Um, end of the season last year, when it came to potential points off of second chances, um, they were three hundred twenty eighth in the country. When it came to second chance conversion percentage, which means whenever they did get second chances, how often they converted, they were two hundred and third in the country. If you look at how they're doing this year, they're actually doing worse. They're sitting there, potential points on second chances, 351st out of 362. And second chance conversion percentage, they're much worse as well, 344th out of 362. So, yes, while they can shoot the ball, at some point you know over the span of six games you are going to go cold and you need to rely on those guys on the inside. That's why you had... Um, a team like UConn that could go very far because you not only did you have the shooters, but you know on the inside last year, you had Sonogo, you had Klingon, and they could cover that as well. That's the weakness for Marquette. Right, and you go back to that Wisconsin win for your Badgers mm-hmm. in late November. Wisconsin out-rebounded Marquette by, they were plus 15 on the glass. Marquette shot only 24% from three. So that's a perfect instance of what we're talking about that could easily happen on a neutral court. Yeah, and I don't know how you fix that to a certain degree. I mean, it's and I think it's kind of sometimes a, a team is just who you are. And I've said sometimes you can't fix an experience. You can't fix shooting usually. And then you can't really kind of fix rebounding. I mean, you are who you are. You, you kind of pick a style of play that you're going to live or die by. And you've seen kind of a fingerprint of Marquette the last few years. You see little shifts here and there. But Shaka's you know, fingerprint is pretty consistent. He's going to kind of go into this 
the way he's always going to go into it. And I think at this point, he's, he's picked his team. He's, he's dealt his hand. He's going to play that hand the best he can. But time after time, we've seen Marquette kind of having that problem up front. That's something they're going to need to address long term, especially if they get bounced early again like they did on the first weekend last year. Yeah, and we're not going to be doing a podcast before this game, but they play Creighton at home a couple days before New Year's, so a day before New Year's Eve. And that is, I mean, Creighton getting swept by Marquette going back to last season, but I am curious to see if Creighton can handle the athleticism that we saw them have issues with, not only against UNLV when their shots weren't falling, but Alabama too to an extent, and I know that maybe came more so when Kalkbrenner was out of the game, and sometimes you get fluky stretches. Listen, I thought the loss of Kaluma and Ryan Emhart to an extent was going to surface at points this season, especially when you go from Nemhard to Ashworth, you're losing athleticism there, despite gaining three-point efficiency for sure. And while Kaluma was somewhat inept, offensively clumsy, I guess at times, he was still very athletic. And Creighton may be missing that a little bit more than we thought. Now, they're a much better three-point shooting team than last year efficiency-wise, and they also rely more on the three. And they are a really good rebounding team when those shots don't drop. But we kind of saw the athleticism issue and, I guess, deficiency come into play not only against UNLV, not only against Alabama at times, especially with their transition defense, but against Colorado State. Now, some of their players may have been sick going back to that late November matchup. I think at least one was, so maybe that played a role in the double-digit loss, but something to watch for once we get into Big East play for Creighton, just looking at the loss of Kaluma and Nemhard in particular to what this roster construction looks like at the moment. But speaking of individual matchups, Eric, as we dive into some of the games this week and handicap with your projections and my projections along with some point spreads that we see out there in the market. Starting out Wednesday night, we have Duke and Baylor on a neutral court. Would you, A, consider buying low on Duke at this game, or do you even make it a buy low opportunity on Duke against the Bears? Not only from a game-by-game situation going up against a quote-unquote top-ten team in Baylor, but also futures-wise with Duke. Are you interested in maybe trying to buy low on Duke futures at 28-1, to 1, or are there still concerns with you with this Blue Devils team? Well, there are concerns, and I think if I'm going to buy into a future, the first thing that has to improve is defense. That's a team right now. Offense, they're doing fine. Seventh in the country for me. 62nd in defensive efficiency for me. That's where it has to change, and that can change. Um, they're well within a range to flip a switch and climb into the top 35. I think I remember seeing that a few years ago, probably about five years back when Coach K did that switch to a zone um, defense sometime around, I want to say like it was early January or something. All of a sudden, the, the, the fortunes of Duke changed overnight, and they just shot up the rankings in defensive efficiency. So they're not that far off. If you're talking about a team that's ranked maybe 125th in defensive efficiency, that's kind of like where an Alabama is right now. Then you got a bigger problem. But Duke at 62 is not terrible, but they still have to address that issue. They have to become a top 30, top 35 defense if they want to run the table, in my opinion. But they have a lot of tools there. This is a top 20 team in adjusted three-point percentage. They perform well on second chances. They get lots of second chances for themselves. They clean the glass defensively. They get to the rim offensively. They are ninth in the country. When you look at the percentage of shots um, taken that are near proximity, they are ninth in the country in that. 
But my I, maybe even more so than defense, I guess for me, my thought is that the problem will continue to be depth. There are just six guys on this team who average more than 13 minutes per game. And if you're going to play the long, the long game, you got to have enough guys who are going to be able to go deep on the bench. I mean, and I know I'm thinking you got to go usually at least eight or nine guys. Right now, we're not seeing that out of Duke. Right now, you might be able to survive, but when the grind of conference ACC keeps going, that's going to get to you over time. I think they need to find more depth, and if they can't find more depth, that's going to be a long-term problem for the Blue Devils. Right, and Duke ranks bottom 25 in your momentum metric. A great tool if you're trying to buy low on a team. Now, I know your projections have Duke as a three-point favorite, so just this game in particular, Duke, as of this recording for this matchup at Madison Square Garden in New York, Around a one-point favorite, up in the air with Tyrese Proctor's status, it seems like with that sprained ankle. I haven't been able to find any reports that either geared towards him playing and suiting up and playing through the injury. Shire was kind of trying to avoid the question last week and saying we're going to try to play him when he's at his full health, and you would expect that with any player, especially with how big Proctor and how much Proctor means to Duke at the defensive end. And that's where they're going to need him most to me in this game with Baylor, not only fired up off of the Michigan state lost, but they can exploit Duke's biggest flaw, which is transition defense. Duke ranks fifth in the fifth percentile in college basketball, which is not good in transition defense. That's how they got exploited on the road at Arkansas. And while Baylor is due for some negative three-point shooting regression like we saw against an angry Michigan State team on Saturday. If Duke doesn't have its best defender on the floor and Proctor, that could be an issue. So what do you make of this spot for Duke if Proctor is a go? Well, I almost take a different approach. I kind of, like I talked about earlier about the hangover, and I said I I find it hard to believe there won't be one. I guess this will be kind of, uh, we'll look at Scott Drew on this one to see how motivated he gets his guys considering they just got punched in the mouth. But you need a you need mental toughness and a short memory in college basketball um, to take a shellacking like the one they took from Michigan State and then come back strong. Um, that's going to be the question is how they respond to this. They, you know, in that game, they lose by 24 with 21 turnovers. And like I said, college kids are very emotional, probably don't have that short memory. And things can turn at any time. They had four straight games with positive game efficiency ratings, 9-0 and going into that Michigan State game. Then easily they have their worst performance of the year. What I tend to see over time is that that these streaks kind of go a little bit, you know, they, things are a little bit streaky. It's usually don't have one-offs. You usually don't have a team play really well for four games, then have one bad, and then have four really good games again. These kind of, you know, stick around. It's kind of the same thing with Duke. Um, I, I, you know, you talked about them being 340th in momentum. I'd say they're more streaky. In their, in their uh, first five games, all five games got a positive game efficiency rating. Then they had three straight negatives, which was uh, the game against Southern Indiana, and then the two losses at Arkansas and at Georgia Tech. And now they've responded again with two positive home wins, which I'd like to see continue against Baylor. Um, again, you know, you're talking about a road game. This is, you know, not, you know, looking at the away from home ratings right now. Duke is 352nd, but then Baylor is 342nd, so it's kind of a push there. But in this situation, it's kind of I, – I look at this and think to myself, I, I still think the hangover is going to be there. And will Baylor come out hungover or will Baylor come out angry? That's going to be the question. I would personally side on them coming out hungover. But, you know, I could very well be wrong. Maybe Drew will have them prepared and they will come out and they will, they will punch Drew, uh, Duke right in the mouth off the bat. I don't know. 
Yeah, and be sure to monitor Proctor's status before this game if you're looking to, to bet it. And we'll see if Baylor is fired up, to Eric's point, or if they continue to undergo three-point shooting regression and negative three-point shooting variance. Because as of right now, they're the top team in three-point percentage in college basketball. And while shooting 44%, just about that number, is great, and it's eye-popping on paper or on your computer for sure, it's not necessarily sustainable over the course of a full season like we saw against a fired-up Michigan State team in their own right. So we'll see which Baylor team shows up or if they can get those transition opportunities to take advantage of Duke's defense, especially if Proctor isn't on the court. But one of the other marquee matchups on Wednesday, we touched on Arizona earlier. We also touched on an SEC team in Auburn, Arizona and Alabama going head-to-head in Phoenix. This line, as we're recording this Tuesday night, around Arizona minus six, six and a half. I personally make this right around Arizona minus six, maybe a little bit lower than that. And Alabama has been one of those teams that's played a ton of great competition in non-conference play, losing to Purdue, losing at Creighton over the weekend. So the resume, while it doesn't stack up when it comes to outright wins, you could hypothetically say maybe you're getting a discount if you do believe Arizona will come out Maybe not flat, but won't come out fired up after that loss at Purdue. Because as Eric said, when you're betting on college basketball, you have to take into account situational spots. And Arizona, after losing a huge game against Purdue, which may, down the road, could come into play as who gets the number one overall seed in the NCAA tournament, who knows, may come out guns a-blazing in this game. And Alabama's defensive efficiency is definitely its biggest liability. But at the other end of the court... Alabama can take advantage of Arizona and drop coverage if Grant Nelson is hitting shots. Now, currently around 26, 27% on unguarded catch and shoot shots this year per synergy, which is definitely due for positive aggression. But also you wonder him making the leap from the low mid-major ranks to high major if he If the efficiency isn't going to be there when you think about a high volume shooter, a guy taking the majority of his shots versus getting select shots in an offense that is very up-tempo when you have high volume scores already, like another mid-major transfer and Aaron Estrada, Mark Sears, who made the jump and a good jump at that a couple years ago. Does the three-point efficiency rise to the surface and will water meet its level in a positive sense? So I do think Alabama is the offensive advantage at their end of the court. If Nelson is hitting shots, it can drag out Ballow from deep and kind of open up the lanes a little bit just because Keisha Johnson is a really athletic format from Arizona that they got in the portal from the runner-up San Diego State. But if Alabama isn't consistent from deep and if Nelson can't space out Ballow, then this seems like another game where Alabama is really going to struggle, especially with its transition defense. Yeah, the uh, the analytics right now are are pretty heavy on Arizona on this one. I think it's ten and a half that I have them for, and you can not even give it a half a point higher, considering this game is going to be played in Phoenix. The over under on this thing is giant one seventy six and a half. I have it, and which makes sense. These teams are all about offenses. The paces, Arizona's 11th in the country in, in game tempo. I have Alabama at 40th in game tempo. I absolutely love 
a good end-to-end shootout. I even said this last week. I said, I'm really looking forward to even more so than the uh, Arizona-Purdue game. I was looking forward to this one because I like up-and-down basketball. This, like Top two offenses. This is number one and number two for me. Alabama's number one and Arizona's number two. But they score differently. Arizona is fourth in the country in near-proximity attempt rate. They get inside. As you said about Alabama, they chuck from three. They're 12th in the country in three-point attempt rate. And as I talked about, the biggest problem I have with Alabama and why I'm, I probably side, if you're talking about a six or six and a half point spread, why I probably side with Arizona is just that Alabama defense. That defense on the interior is drastically different. We knew it would take a dip, but just not this drastically. They're not even top 200 in either defensive near proximity, near proximity attempt rate or near proximity percentage, not top 200 in Division One. And it makes sense. When you think of last year's team, I mean, it's it's a murderer's role. Of, uh, listen to the players. Brandon Miller, Noah Clowney, Javon Quinterly, Charles Bediaco, Jaden Bradley, who now plays for Arizona, Noah Gurley, Namari Burnett, all gone. So it all makes complete sense when all of a sudden you're looking at this team last year that was so competent defensively, and now all of a sudden everything has changed. This team, this team you know, honestly, when I look at the offense-to-defense ratio of their rankings – the numbers very much remind me of Will Wade's final full season at LSU, where I think they were something like, I want to say top 10 in offensive efficiency and like 161 in defensive efficiency. Now, granted, that was a little bit different because that LSU team was not so reliant on the three-pointer, but that offensive efficiency to defensive efficiency ratio kind of holds there. And if you look at a comparison, that LSU team that year went 19 and 10. So... You know, I think that's a major problem. I think Alabama really has to address that problem. Now, as far as Arizona goes, um, you know, I, if this game is a shootout, again, that to a certain degree plays in Arizona's hand. This is a team that has solid depth. Ex- you can expect some kind of production from 10 or 11 guys in the Wildcats. The biggest question I have with Arizona, again, is like, I don't think there's going to be so much to hangover in this situation because I don't think Arizona played poorly against Purdue. I think Purdue just outplayed them. Purdue played outstanding basketball in that game. So I don't think that Arizona really had a down game. It was just Purdue was that good. I think the look-ahead possibility, which I don't think exists because Alabama and FAU, they're usually you see a look-ahead when one, the team you're playing is way lower than the next team you're playing. Um, right. I, I don't see that being a problem here. And for that reason alone, if I'm getting – if it's a six or six-and-a-half point spread, I'm prob- probably siding – with the Wildcats to cover here on Alabama, because I just do not see that defense improving anytime soon. And we'll see if the market continues to come in on Arizona, which you would expect it to, especially just because betters, recent results, this isn't a high-handle game like you would see in conference play, conference tournament time, or especially in the NCAA tournament. And Alabama has struggled against upper-tier competition. Almost covered, might have covered against Purdue. I don't think they did. That... Spread was really tight when it came down to the final score. And Alabama was up in the first half of that game. And like I mentioned, Alabama was up against Creighton in the second half. So they have played up to par. They haven't come away with results. And who knows if Mark Sears hits that half-court shot (laughs) against Creighton, what happens in the extra session. So I'm curious to see what kind of Alabama team we get. And if Nelson's three-point shooting starts to pop and – he does make that efficiency leap like the numbers suggest he would, even though sometimes it's not numbers dependent. Sometimes it is truly is the low major player. Can he adjust to playing at a high major level, especially going up against 
the physicality that he has so far and will continue to do so against Arizona. So something to watch for, for sure, in that game, along with the betting market. But one last matchup to dig into, Eric. In St. Louis, Illinois against Missouri. Lower tier from these other two games that we're discussing, but still a top 15, top 20 team in Illinois per your ratings, per the country's consensus, and these dumb AP top 25 writers, of course. And then Missouri is not a top 25 team under Dennis Gates this year, and they're missing one of their key transfers in Caleb Grill, especially when it comes to generating turnovers, and that's how you theoretically beat Illinois is forcing turnovers, especially when this Illini team lacks a true point guard, Ty Rogers playing limited minutes, maybe not even half of a game in some instances at the point guard spot, just because he isn't your natural point guard can give you other things. Like he's a really good on ball defender on an off ball defender, and also really physical player down low, but not a efficient shooter at that either. Now, Terrence Shannon has made the jump that I didn't necessarily expect this season playing like an All-American Damas. Speaking of low major players, him coming from Southern Illinois, now at Illinois, showed up big time against FAU at the Garden in the Jimmy V Classic, scoring over 30 points. Can Illinois shoot at a high percentage, but also if this spread is going to be around double digits, does their inconsistent free throw shooting coming into play, which is one of the big notes that I had down. I have this closer to around my raw numbers at Illinois minus eight and a half minus nine. What say you on this one, Eric? Yeah, it's pretty close. I got Illinois right now. The analytics of Illinois by nine, the over under is a 145 and a half. Uh, Illinois 37th offensive efficiency, eighth defensive efficiency, probably surprised some people. I, I think, uh, in the preseason rankings, I think I had them at 17, I want to say, and there were a lot of people that kind of questioned that placement. Well, they've kind of met that expectation. They're, they're sitting right now at number 20 for me. They've played well, and when you look at their two losses, there's nothing bad about them. You lost to Marquette at home, and you lost at Tennessee. Those are games you can almost expect them to lose. Um, Illinois with good depth. My my question going forward, you know, they have solid depth. You have a lot of people contributing. You have, you know, Marcus Damask averaging 12 and four, four other guys averaging between seven and nine points per game. That's some pretty decent balance, but I still worry sometime if there's too much reliance on that offensive alpha, Terrence Shannon averaging 21 and four. Hey, credit to Terrence Shannon. He has really stepped up his three-point shooting this year. He shot 32% last year. He's at nearly 42% this year. But I've always said about Terrence Shannon, it's kind of one of those when things start going wrong for Illinois, he's not so much the team element. He's going to take things into his own hands. And I don't think that is necessarily a positive. I think that's kind of the same situation for a Caleb Love and the same reason I have a problem with him as well. Uh, But, you know, credit be, you know, he deserves all the credit in the world for what he has done this year. He has really stepped up his game. As far as Missouri goes, you know, it's it's a little bit of a mess. that offense just is not what it was a year ago. Um, they, they finished the year 19th in offensive efficiency for me last year. 90, 91st for me right now. 56 points per game of production went out the window after last season. And, and everything across the board, looking at all my metrics, everything offensively has seemingly taken a step back, even though there were some high hopes for Missouri, especially offensively. And the defense has actually improved a little bit. Um, compared to last year, but unfortunately, it's just not enough to offset the offense's problems. Um, seven and four record. They had a loss to Memphis by 15. The one point loss to Jackson State was very bad. The loss of Kansas was expected by nine, and then also not a neutral floor. 
they lose to Seton Hall by six. That should not happen. Um, you look at the guard play, it's pretty solid with Sean East and Nick. Nick Honor, a solid one-two punch in the backcourt, averaging about 30 points per game combined. Uh, but like you said, one of the problems going forward is they're struggling already. Now you lose Caleb Grill to a wrist injury for probably six weeks. This is a team that's kind of trying to find its way, and I think Illinois has to pounce and cover here. All right, so a little bit juxtaposed there in terms of maybe the final score, but I will say, going back to that free throw nugget, with Illinois' poor free throw shooting and maybe struggling against the press if Missouri goes to that down the stretch, Mizzou also 19th in the country in free throw percentage. So just in terms of how some of these larger point spreads swing, you wouldn't have an issue for a team. Like, let's say the, the market jumps all over Arizona against Alabama. Arizona still top 80 in free throw percentage. Illinois, obviously not the case when it comes to free throw efficiency. So just something to keep in mind there. Eric, we didn't get into this earlier, but to wrap it up, worst holiday Christmas gift you've ever received? <laughs> well, I can't say I've really gotten a bad gift, and I don't ever look, really look to get You had to have gotten a bad well, gift. I, I'm sure, well, oh, I, oh, actually, you know, I just thought of one. I just thought of one because I'm thinking of my adult life. And I hate to say this because God bless her soul. She meant well. And this is my grandmother who passed away 23 years ago. But I want to say I was probably like in sixth grade or something. And I got I got roller skates. And I they were blue roller <laughs> skates with with uh, with red wheels. And I remember opening them up. And I think the look on my face told the story. And, and if anyone who knows me. I'm not an outdoor, I'm not a balanced guy. My my daughters will will jump on those boogie boards and things like that. I can't I can barely get in a kneeling position, not let alone a standing position. So imagine <laughs> me trying I you know, I'm I, I've skied twice, I think. I've never ice skated. I don't I've never rollerbladed. I've never I never roller skated up until that point. So trying to get me in my basement floor just moving around on on uh on roller skates at the age of what was I at the time, twelve or something like that was was pretty sad. Um, you know, I, I was going to say, the the one I was going to go with was I asked my wife a few years, you know, this is more than a few years ago, probably about a dozen years back, maybe more. And I said, I need some some brand new sweatpants. And I'm thinking the Adidas sweatpants, you know, the black with the three white stripes along the side. Well, she brings in the, uh, she brings in the 1983 sweatpants, the, the gray ones that have like the elastic around the ankles. And, <laughs> And uh, we uh, we got a good laugh out of it because they were way too big, anyways. And it's amazing that they were too big, considering I am six foot six, two fifty. I literally was able to pull these things up to my <laughs> up to my armpits. I think these were Zach Eady's sweatpants, not my own. But <laughs> but no, now that you mentioned, I was going to say I, I I hate to say it was a bad gift, but those roller skates, those roller skates in nineteen eighty six. Uh, you know, I, I felt so bad after the fact because, you know, I think my, my grandmother meant well, but just, well, I was going to say, it's like you had to skate in front of her and then fall on your ass. So oh God, I was terrible. You had to prove it, prove it's worth a little bit. I, <laughs> the generic one that I always get, whether it's from a family friend or maybe a coworker in years past is your dumb calendar, <laughs> especially with Google calendar and however else you're, everybody keeps track of things maybe i don't of, of things coming up in the week appointments and whatnot on your iphone but yeah i just i don't need a paper calendar to put on my mm -hmm. fridge anymore i'm first of all i'm i'm younger i'm 30-ish so i don't need no one no one my age has a calendar right <laughs> 
No one my age. Well, I take that back. My wife has a calendar. She's old. Nobody. <laughs> let's just put it this way. Nobody under the age of 50 has a, cal- has right. a calendar. Because I'm 49. She's 53. So that means next year I'm going to start using a paper calendar, I guess. You're the cutoff. I'll get you I'm a calendar cutoff. next year. Oh, my for... God. I've, I've, <laughs> I've officially reached that point in my life. Oh, my God. It's over. <laughs> <laughs> Fun episode of Outside Shots. Thanks for everyone who listened and checked it out during the holiday season, whether you dug the future stuff or the game-by-game breakdowns. We'll be back later in the new year. Eric, any last words before we get out of here? Merry Christmas, everybody. (laughs) All right. Good luck if you get roller skates or a paper calendar as a holiday or Christmas gift. Thanks for listening to this edition of Outside Shots. Be sure to check out Eric on Twitter, X at Haslametrics, haslametrics.com for all the college basketball betting insight and analytics, deep analytics resource for anybody, whether you're a better or a fan. You can follow me on Twitter, X, at Eli Herskovich. Check out thelines.com for all things college basketball betting and price shopping. Remember to head over to our Discord channel as well to get our staff bets, whether it's futures or game-by-game bets, and also use the BetMGM promo code. The line's one word. If you're betting college basketball, first-time users get up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if your first bet loses. That's promo code THELINES. This edition of Outside Shots presented by thelines.com.